Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen, and Rick is a clinical psychologist and best-selling author who's spent over 35 years teaching people the key lessons from psychology and contemplative practice that lead to a good life. And I'm also happy to say that he happens to be my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? Well, that's kind. Thank you. I'm listening and speaking with a window that's open, and once in a while people might hear a dog barking in the distance, but it's a happy dog with my good and happy neighbors. (laughs) Just stream of consciousness? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I just, I, I actually, I think this is a teaching. I think it's really helpful just to acknowledge what's going on and to let people know who might be alarmed, like, is the dog being hurt or what are the neighbors like or, you know, just sort of, it's, it's all okay. It's kind of like establishing a foundation of normalcy, like it's ba- basic okayness, basic enoughness, which might have a relationship with what we hope to talk about with each other today. Hey, I mean, I'm sure it's a great dog. There is nothing problematic going on with the dog. I wasn't personally worried about that, but maybe somebody else was. And uh, yeah, as you're saying, maybe that serves as something of a segue into our topic today. We're going to be continuing our uh, maybe series, maybe just a couple of episodes. We'll kind of see how far we go down the rabbit hole here on the quote unquote dark side of self-help, basically the various ways in which self-help, personal growth, personal development can become problematic or even unhealthy for different kinds of people. In the first episode, we spoke about forced positivity and the way in which uh, self-help and personal growth environments, particularly online, can create the experience sometimes in people of having to put up a false front of relentless uh, happiness and fulfillment or this kind of hustle mentality where they're all about the grind, quote-unquote, So that's kind of where we left things off, and today we're going to wend from there into this other idea, or maybe thought, that seems to permeate self-help a lot, that I would love Rick's help kind of interrogating a little bit, and it's the idea that something is wrong with you. We all, of course, have little things that are a little wrong with us, whether it's physically or psychologically or whatever else, but inside of a lot of uh, self-help environments, there is this fundamental assumption that you're trying to solve a problem. And we can approach that in good ways, or we can approach that in a little bit more problematic ways. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk with Rick about today. So how does that sound? It's a great topic. First, I want to just call out the distinction between framing something as a problem or something wrong, distinct from, huh, I'd like to feel less anxious in the background, or I'd like to bounce back faster when other people criticize me rather than kind of brooding over it literally for the next day and a half. Or I'd like to be able to stop at one glass of wine and not get sucked into routinely drinking three. For example, see the difference between there's something wrong with me, there's something that's a problem compared to, well, I do have preferences. I do have values that are positive maybe related in part to my impact on other people or the encouragement they've given me. And I'm, I'm pursuing an aim here that is going in a, I think, good direction. Obviously, I've got to be careful. Am I you know, paying an excessive price for this improvement of some sort that I'm wanting? Uh, 
But there's nothing innately problematic about either fixing things that are broken or taking things that are okay and improving them some. Second thing I want to bring up here is that it's striking to me that we're not having this conversation about people who are wanting to wax their cars a little more shinily. We're not having this pro- this conversation about people who are wanting to become better cooks or cook new dishes in new kinds of ways. This is interesting. People who want to run their business more effectively, people who want to get some of the recurring weeds out of their backyard better. We don't think there's a dark side to home improvement. (laughs) There's not a dark side to better business management. So it's very interesting that we now are bringing that focus into the personal sphere. And we're doing it for a reason, because there can be a dark side. But I I wanted to sort of call out that being goal-directed is not itself problematic. Having values is not itself problematic. In fact, it's inescapable. To seek the value of no values is itself a value. Also, I want to just kind of quote Suzuki Roshi here to make the point, as he said, you're perfect as you are, and you could use some improvement. Now, it's inside that frame. I've kind of set the table, and we can get into some of the details, but I just kind of wanted to lay that structure out. And if you want, I'll I'll toss out a couple, for me, provocative questions. One is, can you accept yourself completely as you are warts and heroics and all? The good, the bad, the neither. Can you fully accept yourself? Second question, can you rest in contentment? Are you able to do that? So right there is a big question. If a person can fully accept themselves, if they can fully rest in contentment, then they can steer clear of most of the potential pitfalls in the so-called dark side. Uh, or the, I prefer not to use color-laden adjectives, you know, uh, so the problematic side, if you will, of positive psychology and self-help in general. And I think for many, many people, it's really difficult for them to accept themselves fully or to feel completely content, which then can become something that they seek to develop, that you can try to develop self-acceptance. You can try to develop contentment. Uh, and as you develop it, then you're more able to have wholesome aims, to pursue wholesome aims with wholesome means without getting too attached to the results. That's a great framework to work from uh, for this conversation. And I want to kind of return to something that you said a little bit ago about we're talking about the problematic parts of self-help, not the problematic parts of you know being a restaurateur or yep. wanting to wax your car a little more, whatever it might be. And I think inside of that, you're, um, there's kind of an obvious point, which is that being raised, which is that anything taken to excess has issues with it, or almost anything taken to excess has issues with it. It's about finding the right balance, the right relationship with whatever it is that you're doing. Equally, this idea that we're going to be kind of unpacking during this conversation of investigating or interrogating the idea that something is wrong with you, that you have to change, taken to an extreme, that's really problematic. At the same time, at the, uh, at the negative extreme, there's nothing wrong with you, you're perfect just the way you are, to reference the Suzuki Roshi quote, well, that's also got some problems with it because most of us are not necessarily perfect individuals, myself included. So, And he added, you could use some improvement. Yeah, exactly. So finding that balance, that middle way, 
is going to be a really important part of most everything you do. At the same time, and this is, you know, my personal opinion is starting to wander in a little bit here. Um, there's a difference between playing with psychological forces and playing with activities out in the world. Activities out in the world can be a manifestation of our psychology, of course, absolutely. Um, but a lot of the time, if you mess up repairing your car, you just hurt your car. Now, that can have big consequences for somebody. I don't want to diminish that. But it's not the same thing as having a really uncomfortable experience internally. We carry ourselves with us wherever we go. And because the self-help industry as a whole is essentially playing inside of people's minds, to put it a certain kind of way, that is very dangerous territory. That's very fragile territory. Um, and it's territory within which it's very easy for people to be exploited in a variety of different ways. You see this all over the place. Uh, you spoke to yourself on the first episode that we did about problematic gurus and kind of very questionable practices that can take place inside of the self-help world. Uh, I think myself, uh, to be frank, uh, various forms of pseudoscience, whether that's the 1900 snake oil all the way up to kind of that version in the present day, but maybe gilded up a little bit differently or with this kind of uh, lots of shiny lights and people with big open eyes and big light backgrounds behind them gazing off into the distance with their robe and their long hair and whatever it might be. Who include the word quantum. Yes. Into oh, anything. God, yes. Quantum, quantum meditation. Yeah. Quantum spirulina. Quantum. It starts to make you a little nervous. Quantum yeah. anything. Okay, good. Yeah, great way to put it. it. It starts to, when I start hearing about quantum potentiality, I, I immediately get a little bit nervous about whatever somebody is telling me because it's probably based on junk science or at least science that this individual has not thoroughly investigated. Yeah. So that's kind of my context for why there can be a problematic side to self-help practices of various kinds and why, and why maybe it's appropriate in those contexts to offer a little bit more care, caution, thoughtfulness, whatever the word might be, than it is when we think about whether or not somebody is, uh, you know, learning a little bit too much about cooking this week or whatever it might be. So I'm trying to zero in on the real problems. One real problem I've seen is a situation in which the underlying feeling or belief that something is wrong with oneself, that one is damaged goods, one is broken, one is tainted, which may relate to experiences in childhood or having been traumatized in adulthood. If there's some underlying framework language, terminology, self-schema, you know, belief about who one is. If there's some underlying framework that uh, views oneself as somehow damaged goods, then various forms of psychotherapy, counseling, coaching, mindfulness practices, self-help processes, guru-seeking, whatnot, can reinforce that underlying problematic frame. Yeah, totally. A second place where I think this shows up, and I can certainly experience and talk about this from the inside out, is you can get caught up in relating to your own mind with a kind of fix-it preoccupation that has a certain dualistic quality to it in terms of your internal experience of things, as if there's a you 
who's sort of the core of executive action inside your own mind, who's looking out at aspects of your own psyche as a mess that need to be fixed in some kind of frustrated, ongoing sort of way. And in a way that crowds out, I mean, there's a place for a little bit of that, but what then can happen is it crowds out the valuable uh, inner resource of spacious, mindful acceptance of the totality, the entirety of your psyche, the vast estate of your own being, all the provinces included, swamps and jeweled gardens included. So two takeaways from that. One, uh, in addition to uh, being able to develop and rest in traits of utter self-acceptance, as Tarbrock puts it, radical acceptance, including of yourself, and second, to develop the quality of contentment, utter contentment with things as they are, even as one pursues various goals. I've named those two already. In addition to those two, which can help prevent some of the problems that we're talking about here, not operating within a framework, stepping out of the paradigm that you're broken in some way, and making sure you're, you're not reinforcing that paradigm one way or another. And then being able to relate to your own mind in this completely uh, spacious, abiding with it, being with it kind of way uh, that's all-inclusive in terms of your own consciousness. This does not, in my opinion, rule out the appropriateness and the place for recognizing specific things about yourself that you're trying to release, reduce, abandon, diminish, disengage from, and so forth, while also trying to grow, cultivate, establish, you know, rest increasingly in positive qualities of various kinds. There, there's a place for that. But if we've established these other factors that I've named so far, then I think we can engage those forms of wise effort, releasing what's problematic, growing what's beneficial uh, in ways that don't drop us into the pitfalls so much of positive psychology and self-help. One of the things in my experience that can move people more into the uh, the sense that they're fundamentally not enough, um, because I, for me, I think that most of the exploitative things that happen inside of the self-help universe, whether it's courses from people who have no uh, validation and to offer those courses, frankly, or it's things that are really overpriced, or it's various forms of snake oil, or it's pseudoscience, or it's whatever that we could get into. All of those things prey on a sense of lack, fundamentally. Yeah. If you want something, I can sell you something to fill that hole. And one of the ways to make somebody feel like they don't have enough is by presenting yourself as somebody who has all these things. Yes. And one way of doing that you see all the time in kind of normal sales where you have the real estate agent who like drives the really nice car and has the really nice house and they're like, oh, don't you want a nice house? That's as nice as my nice house. Or telling you, shouldn't you become a real estate agent so you too can have a nice car like this? Whatever it might be, to be clear, nothing against real estate agents. It's just a prominent example. In self-help, it gets a little trickier because it becomes about the teacher's sense of self-realization in some yeah. cases or the guru's sense of realization. I have achieved this great sense of realization. You clearly have not in some way. You are not as happy as I am. Therefore, I can teach you all of these things. 
sometimes there's some truth to this. I think of, you know, the Thich Nhat Hans of the world, somebody who's clearly achieved a level of real realization that uh, gives them a stance from which to teach. Yeah. But that's not always the case. And sometimes it's used a little bit exploitatively, particularly, um, I think, of various cults back in the 60s and 70s that mm -hmm. did horrible things based off of that kind of exploitation. So how do you think people can either A, be less taken in by the comparison that sort of pervades our society to a certain extent? And B, how have you been able to tell when you felt like a teacher's level of realization, to put it a certain kind of way, is legitimate? This topic is so great. And also it edges beyond self-help into yeah. oh, totally. the Western, yep. yeah, Western culture, maybe no longer just Western, uh, preoccupation with image and with personal brand. And just we just live in a sea of pitches. I don't mind learning from people who are trying to sell me something because internally I know I can say no when I really want to learn it. But if I don't really want to be pitched, I want to be able to disengage. I also want to acknowledge that I deal with this myself. It is so tempting as anyone who's a public figure in any domain, you are the brand to some extent. And there's always this process where you're asking yourself, and you can see people talking about this who are in the entertainment business at a high level, sports figures, business people on TV, who really have to talk about how do you both appropriately communicate certain aspects of your own psychology that are relevant and useful? How can you be appropriately skillful and attentive to how the marketplace is seeing you and making sure you don't commit career suicide by saying something really stupid? How can you do all those things without developing a false self-persona of some magnitude and while also remaining in touch with who you actually really are? and a sincerity of positive intentions that are, that are genuinely benevolent, which also may well include a reasonable amount of appropriate self-interest along the way. So you're just kind of hearing me talk through considerations I have. And in that as well, um, <clears throat> paying attention to how it is for other people when they're around you. Because of course, they're watching whether you're walking your own talk they're also maybe excited to talk with you. And maybe there's that little tendency in them, even understandably, to put you up on a pedestal. But the higher you up you are up on the pedestal, the farther you have to fall eventually. So it's it's really interesting and kind of complex, actually. So all that said, one of the things that's been there for me is to trust my gut about what it's like to be in certain settings or around certain people or how you feel when you're around them. And also how you feel when you're around the people, the other people who are really into that particular teacher. Does it feel safe around them? Mm -hmm. In other words, there's usually yeah. like, uh, if you imagine the, the key teacher, whoever it is, as the center of a bullseye, and then around them are other people who are sort of senior associates and then moving further and further out. What's it like to be around them? Do you feel like they're always trying to sell you on something? Do, you, do they seem genuinely happy? Do, do, do their lives actually work? Uh, are they constantly feeling the need to buy some new level program? 
with you know the organization or with the teacher, all that's really pretty problematic. So that's that's a giveaway for me. And then uh, maybe I'll finish on this one little point here. I've been in numerous situations that I would kind of think of as cultic or half a cult or having certain features, even in situations where the primary teacher seemed really legit. But around that teacher were others who, to some extent, in our human tribal nature, would try to lift their own authority and their own charisma by extension, their own glamour by association, and they were maybe more problematic. In any case, what really served me often was to zero in on what's useful for me and disengage from the rest. And this goes mm. back to uh, stuff we've explored before about having healthy boundaries yourself and also keeping in mind those, those four tips I had about can you accept yourself fully? Can you feel contented already? Are you working within a frame that you're tainted, dirty, broken, bad? Uh, can you stay out of that frame, right, and not reinforce it unwittingly? And then last, can you really uh, rest in utterly being with your own mind, distinct from working with it uh, as appropriate, right? In that context, then, uh, it's a lot easier to pick and choose what's actually valuable for you in certain situations or for certain teachers, and you know, frankly, leave the rest. This could wander us into a much broader conversation that we've already kind of had on the podcast, so I sort of want to avoid that. Yeah. Uh, but just really quickly, do you yourself feel like you struggle with comparison? And if so, what do you do about it? It arises in my mind to look out there, and I had a childhood in which I experienced a lot that the cool kids I was ambivalent about, I both wanted to be included among them, and I looked at them and I felt superior to them. So it was a double whammy. I wanted to be with them, and yet I didn't think they deserved to be sitting there at the head table in one way or another. So as an adult, it can sometimes come up for me that I can be aware of people out there who have, let's say, a level of fame or fortune, a prominence of some kind that I don't have. And I think by comparison, wow, that just seems so strange. It doesn't seem fair. My stuff's really great. There's this kind of mediocre. Plus, I know they're kind of a jerk sometimes when the microphone's off, blah, blah. That can ar arise in my mind. I thoroughly admit it. It arises in my mind a lot less than it used to much, much mm. less, partly because I have attained some success, in part through your help, Forrest, for which I want to thank oh, you. Oh, thanks, Dad. <laughs> yeah. And and so, you can, you know, we, we again, we speak from, I won't necessarily call it privilege, but it's easy to make assumptions that don't take into account that what we're speaking from is contextualized in our current situation. Mm. So, mm -hmm. and also I've practiced a lot with this process of comparison because it's it's wounding, it's suffering. Ultimately, there's no comparison. As they, I think, as Zen teaches, and uh, there's some poetry from Rumi along these lines, you know, in the ultimate, there's no better or worse. There's no as good as or less than or more than. It's just, we're all beings. We're just doing our thing. And it's also been really helpful to appreciate that there are a thousand factors in the in the mix, uh, shaping how successful we are. 
and only a handful of them are under our own control. So if it goes well, most of it's not because of you. If it goes badly, most of it's not because of you. And then meanwhile, there's your own part. Speaking specifically about what to do about comparison, for me, uh, separating means and ends has been an extremely important practice. Mm. Particularly, again, in the world kind of of social media, I think it's really easy to see means and think that they're ends. So what I mean by that is think about the kind of example that you see all the time if you're a 20-year-old-ish or 30-year-old-ish or probably even 40-year-old-ish person and you're browsing around Instagram. And it's kind of the really cool picture of the the guy about to get in or girl about to get in a private jet and go somewhere cool and they're giving the thumbs up and they got their cool clothes on and they're like, yeah, it's great to be me, essentially. Like yeah. fundamentally, that's kind of the communication of yep. the picture. It's really easy to look at that and go, I want that too. Yeah. And I don't have that because I'm not good enough on yeah. some level. If I just do X, it'll get me to good and therefore I will have that experience. Like that's kind of fundamentally what we're talking about here. Yep. Um, and the pitfall that you can fall into and that can lead to a lot of problematic behaviors. It can lead to a lot of self-hating for starters and a lot of self-recrimination and suffering. And then on top of that, it can lead to some problematic behaviors trying to seek for that thing. And I was certainly and remain certainly very guilty of that in terms of looking at the picture and going, wow, that seems really great. Now I feel bad because I don't have that. That part of it, I'm still very culpable of. Mm. But what's really helped me is increasingly looking at that and asking, okay, is that an end or is that a means? And here's what I mean by that. Because the end for me, end of the day, is happiness and fulfillment. Mm. And yeah, that experience might be a fun experience, but ultimately it is a means to that end of happiness and fulfillment. It's just one means. There are a lot of means that exist out in the world. And many of them, most of them even, are really achievable. I can have a lot of means that I can really do today to get me to that end of fulfillment and happiness most of the time. And I think that if we can reframe and recenter on what we ultimately actually want to achieve, as opposed to getting fixated on the means by which we are going to achieve it, Things can get really simple, frankly, and it can be really clarifying in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, sometimes there's still going to be the feeling of like, oh, I wish I were on that plane. But that's kind of the nature of life a little bit and increasingly moving towards, okay, but what do I actually want outside of just the experience itself has been really helpful for me personally. When social comparison arises, right, we can prevent it increasingly over time through various practices like we've talked about, including internalizing genuine feelings of self-worth and contentment already. Uh, more and more when you start seeing the pictures, what comes up for you is happiness for them rather than envy or and feelings of inadequacy. That said, when <laughs> it arises in the mind, I find yeah. it's, in a weird way, it's kind of helpful to appreciate just that it's part of our common humanity that experiences of social comparison and envy arise because we're profoundly social monkeys. And we naturally compare ourselves to others. We care about reputation. We care about what people think about us. We care about our standing in the, in the band. And all these qualities that we have developed and really increased to an extraordinary level, unlike any other species on the planet, 
those qualities have enabled us to get through really tough times back in the Stone Age and then during Game of Thrones and then in the last century, certainly, so that here we are today. So in a funny kind of way, you can reframe your vulnerability to social comparison as part of the magnificence of the development of the human heart and its capacity for deeply important and loving relationships. Another weird thing to do is to deliberately be happy for those people. Grounded in Buddhist psychology is the recognition that this kind of quality of altruistic joy, uh, sympathetic joy, where you're happy for them, it's a generous joy. You're glad that they're glad. Uh, it's a great antidote to envy. It's wonderful, actually, to cultivate it. And I can recall being in a meditation retreat once, thinking of someone who I thought was one of the cool kids and didn't deserve to be there as much as I did. And I just started doing this meditation again and again. You know, may you have the success that I lack. May you have the success that I lack. And not that he was taking from me, but just I was glad. I, I was finding a genuine gladness for him. You could have that success. I'm glad for you. I'm glad for your family. I'm glad for, for what that brings for you. May it be a benefit to others. That was a really good practice, wonderful practice for me. The last thing I would just say about this whole social comparison thing is to realize that at the end of the day, they've got their life, you've got yours. And the real takeaway, bottom line, is what's your practice? Are you practicing? Are you actually doing the work? And I think for a lot of people, maybe some people certainly, they can look out there for social comparison and they can think, oh, that person has washboard abs or that person has <laughs> uh, the really neat job or that person has a very calm, you know, centered quality of being around them. To some extent, maybe their genetics had something to do with it, but a lot of it was acquired and maybe acquired in relationship to social forces that privileged them and advantaged them in various ways. Okay, fine but there's an acquisition process here. What are you acquiring? Are you doing the work? And I find that's really quite a sincere gut check. Brings us back to ourselves. Whatever life you have over there, what's my practice over here? And am I doing it? Am I working my program every day? Yeah, and that can reclaim some agency as well and take it away from the uh, the goal, again, to return to the, the airplane. Yeah. You know, the goal of the airplane can feel awfully far away, but if you just recenter yourself and what is my practice today, that can feel very achievable. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to return to something that you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier with this this point you made around, well, okay, if we succeed, yes, it's on us, but it's also on 10,000 other forces. And if we fail, yes, it's on us, but it's also on 10,000 other forces. To me, just speaking personally, one of the things that has always kind of bugged me the most about some kinds of self-help or personal growthy frameworks is the complete attribution of responsibility onto the individual for their conditions, their circumstances, and so on. Um, I'm thinking specifically of things like the secret. The idea that if you just will for it hard enough, it will appear in your life. Uh, which I think is a deeply problematic belief, frankly, um, because what's attached to that is this idea of, okay, if something is going wrong inside of your life, it must be your fault. Mm -hmm. right. And that's simply not always true. There is a enormous and deeply problematic sense of survivorship bias that's attached to the ideas like the secret and similar methodologies. Um, 
It's very easy for somebody uh, sitting up in front of 10,000 people giving a keynote to say, just try hard and go for your dreams. Because guess what? It worked out for them. Yeah. But there are probably 10,000, 100,000 people who tried really hard and went for their dreams, and it didn't work out so well for them. And that is a truth that we just miss all the time when listening to different kinds of people. And sometimes it's helpful to think about, okay, well, what were the practices that worked out actually for a large number of people, as opposed to the one person who is sitting here in front of me where it happened to work out for them? Because on the one hand, we have to take responsibility. And on the other hand, we have to hold the reality that sometimes stuff just happens to us. Yep. Good stuff, bad stuff, stuff in between. Um, I'm a relatively privileged person, so a lot of good stuff has happened to me in the course of my life. And some of that is due to good effort, but some of it's not. Some of it's just privilege talking. Um, and I think that like holding that in our minds can really help us create some separation from this question of like, or this feeling of there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with you, maybe put a little bit more directly. So let's talk about the secret, so-called, of a book, became a movie, lots and lots of people saw it. Law of Attraction, it. yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so first, I want to distinguish between natural and supernatural types of explanations. Back in the old days, the sun rose, and maybe some people believed that Apollo, the charioteer of the sun, was driving his horses across the heavens, hauling the sun along. That's why the sun rose and eventually set. That was a supernatural kind of explanation. Now we understand the sun rises and sets because actually the earth is rotating, which makes it look like it's rising and setting. That's a natural kind of explanation. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? So <laughs> let's suppose that a person says, you know, I really long for true love. I've had relationships, they didn't pan out. Maybe I had a great one, I don't have it anymore. Um, I'm looking for my twin flame, my soulmate. I really want that. And then let's also suppose that this person forms a very clear intention. They are actually sincere and they're lined up inside about that aim. They're wholehearted in their intentionality. Second, let's suppose that this person forms a good plan. They think to themselves, okay, I'm gonna work on myself a little bit, maybe in some ways. Uh, I'm also going to put myself out there in the world, uh, maybe online. I'm gonna ask friends to keep, in, keep me in mind if they know somebody new who might be single. I'm gonna form a good plan. And then third, I actually bring sustained effort aligned with my clear intention while I'm working and revising my plan day after day after day after day. Yeah, sounds great. Okay, and then I eventually, let's suppose, find true love. While we also mm -hmm. acknowledge that there's a certain amount of fortune, good luck, bad luck in the mix here. And now how do I explain it? Do I explain it naturally, that I formed a very clear intention and I was completely grounded in my intention uh, in terms of natural processes of psychology and, and the mind grounded in underlying neurological processes, great. Now we're in a natural explanation. No worries. And in that context, it's absolutely true that your odds of success go up a lot if you, A, form a really clear, integrated, unified intention 
you're crystal clear about and you're really given over to, second, with a very good plan, B, and C, with sustained effort over time. Your odds go up dramatically for whatever it is that you're going after. That's great. Yeah, and believing that you can accomplish this goal is an essential part of that, fundamentally. Believing that it's not a totally unaccomplishable goal and it's totally something you could never do, like having that sense of self-belief that you can go and find true love is a absolutely necessary dot, 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 but not sufficient condition in order to go out and find true love. Right, and, and you could even know that, hey, which is actually relieving, uh, uh, you know, you can know that, hey, uh, I may not find true love, but you know what? It's not going to be for lack of effort. Uh, I've had sure. that attitude about yeah. my own career. However high I soar, it's not going to be for lack of effort. Uh, you know, I could be limited for other reasons, but it's not going to be for lack of, <laughs> <laughs> lack of effort. <laughs> you can, fair enough, fair as, enough. Yeah. As you've seen. <laughs> but anyway, okay. <laughs> now, on the other hand, the person says, you know, I think the reason I found true love is because I prayed for it every day. And I think it's because of some kind of supernatural process in which an angel helped me or some energy that's distinct from the energies in the Big Bang universe or grace, God, heard my prayers and, and helped me. Now you're resorting to a supernatural, even transcendental kind of explanation. And I think it's very important to separate those out because often what I've heard people do is glamorize what are actually natural processes with a certain amount of supernatural, transcendental mumbo jumbo, maybe throwing the word quantum in along the way, uh, as a way to sell more courses, sell more books, and sell more programs. But actually, they did not need to resort at all to those supernatural slash transcendental slash quantum level explanations for good old-fashioned psychology, planning, skill, and effort with a dose of good luck along the way. Now, here's where you and I, I think, diverge a little bit. <laughs> Personally, I'm not prepared to rule out supernatural or transcendental factors. And I do think that's a genuinely scientific attitude. And one of the issues I have with people throwing in a lot of supernatural or transcendental mumbo jumbo wrapped around, it's like a supernatural wrapper of very natural, standard, understandable, old school psychological explanations, is that to me it cheapens the genuinely supernatural or the... Mm potentially genuine supernatural, and it cheapens the potentially genuine transcendental to call upon it to manifest a pearl necklace. Yeah, totally. You know, what? And you know, do you really think God cares if you have a, super, have a pearl necklace, right? Amidst everything else going on? And then last, if someone has a genuine feeling for a supernatural force that they call upon, even if potentially from the view of someone who's an atheist, let's say, that there really is no supernatural force. Still, it could be psychologically useful. It could foster certain actions and attitudes and thoughts and feelings 
within ordinary natural reality for a person to engage supernatural, spiritual, religious, transcendental practices. See the important distinction I'm making? We, standing outside it, we might think to ourselves, this person is resorting to factors and thinking of explanations that we don't believe are really true, and yet in the process of their practices, their engagement with those forces, factors, rituals, explanations, traditions, blah, blah. I hear where you're going here. Yeah, they're engaging thoughts and feelings and actions down here on planet Earth that are very effective along the way. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that for me, I, I we might have some level of uh, difference of belief in terms of like the nature of the transcendental or the possibility of things that exist outside of the quote unquote scientific frame. But honestly, my personal view about it is a pretty agnostic one, which as you were saying, I, I think is very science driven because I know that I don't know. Yeah. And maybe there is a energetic power to the nature of intention. I don't know, like maybe there is. I think it's pretty unlikely to be perfectly honest. Uh, but I mean, it's theoretically plausible. I don't know. Uh, and it's certainly way above my pay grade. Yep. But where people start to run into problems with things like this is exactly where you said. It's where the belief that that will be enough starts to get in the way of real action out in the world. Yeah, that's right. And that's kind of category A where it's problematic. And category B where it's problematic, I just want to return to what I said before because I think it's a really big deal. Uh, it's when we start blaming people oh, yeah. for their lack of achievement because it's their fault because they just haven't believed hard enough. Yeah, That is deeply problematic. It is a profoundly privileged viewpoint. Yeah. And you know, I, I think that, again, it's what leans my personal belief around the secret specifically, but a lot of that stuff in general, as it's just being one of the most aggressive manifestations of survivorship bias mm. that I have ever seen out in the world. Yeah. Because yes, if you're the sort of person who gets to the point where they're like teaching about the secret in front of 10,000 other people, yeah, it's worked out great for you. Yeah. But like, what were the other contributing factors? And what about the people where it doesn't work out so great for them? Yeah. Because um, we don't see those people, they're invisible. And for the record, I, I actually know some of the people in mm -hmm. the movie, certainly. Uh, and I would say a lot of them would be nodding along in the nuanced distinctions that you and I are, are drawing, mm -hmm. which in some cases probably ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah. Th that said, now I want to go to the last distinction, which is potentially the most problematic for people, which is... Maybe a person actually has a very matter-of-fact sense that, wow, there's just more going on than the Big Bang universe. Uh, don't understand it fully, recognize pitfalls in getting um, ideological or righteous about all that. But, you know, I've got a real sense of that. I've just, let's say, a person may well have had experiences of that sort, uncanny, inexplicable. Uh, maybe they've talked with others who have had also uncanny, inexplicable, profound, revelatory kinds of experiences. And for them, you know, that's part of their meta-reality frame, that there really is something beyond the beyond that matters to them and, and is of interest. And my own view is, and I just want to again call out that distinction, now we have finally arrived at uh, the genuinely supernatural or genuinely transcendental. 
and which is a meaningful matter for many, many people. I guess as a personal opinion, as someone who has, I'm in that last category, who has a feeling for this, uh, based on both experience and reason, I guess for myself, I would, I want to be careful about not glibly denying that possibility, personally. And clearly, you do not glibly deny that possibility yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, this conversation kind of wandered in a direction that got a little bit different. But um, I don't think there's anything glib about either element of this conversation. Um, I, I think that the ways in which various forms of pseudoscience have been used to convince people for thousands of years that they should be doing practices that are either not helpful or actively harmful yep. is a deeply serious thing, frankly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And this includes a, a lot of the struggles that organized religion has had throughout the years, but yeah. that's not really the focus of either our podcast or this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. On the other side of things, yeah, you don't want to, uh, you know, glibly poke fun at the possibility of something well beyond our understanding. Uh, my personal approach to it is just an acceptance that I don't know. And it makes sense for me to focus on the things that I know that I can do out in the world. Yep. And those are tools that we all have available to us, uh, regardless of our level of belief or our level of whatever else. And that's where I choose to kind of spend my time. Yeah while also holding the truth of what you said earlier, which is that many things lie outside of our control. That might be attributed to a kind of ultimate sense, a spiritual sense of outside of our control, or it might just be the very real ways down here on planet Earth where we all have different lives that have uh, very different levels of privilege associated with them. And the results from that come through in very different ways. Fantastic. One thing I would add, having known some of the people in The Secret, is that in their daily lives, these are successful, engaged, professional people often in many ways. And most of what they do day to day, probably minute by minute, has nothing to do with the spirit world. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're balancing their checkbook, they're making their coffee, they're driving in traffic, they're handling emails, they're figuring stuff out. Maybe in the back of their awareness is a sense of, something that for them is beyond this reality, right? But most of what they're doing is just day-to-day, down-here-on-planet-Earth kind of stuff. In effect, the rhythm here is you're saying, hey, there are pitfalls for many people in X, Y, and Z, right? In psychotherapy, in mindfulness training, going on retreats, self-help, the secret you know, faith healing, spiritual practices, they're pitfalls, religion, pitfalls. And my response a lot structurally is that's really true. And basically, if people would do practical things down here on planet Earth with a good heart and sustained effort over time, almost all those pitfalls are avoided. Go to your, go to your real doctor and then if you also want to, you know, visualize healing purple light coming through you, do it. I'm telling you, Forrest, if I get something like a serious illness, I'm going to work all of it. <laughs> great. I think that that's a really good point. Um, it's a great place to 
wrap this conversation for the moment because we could kind of keep on talking about this endlessly, I suspect. Uh, Today, we focused on another kind of problematic or challenging element of self-help environments, the way in which people can be made to feel like something is wrong with them. And then alongside that, the ways that people in positions of power can exploit that feeling of not enoughness internally. We began the conversation with a focus on comparison and how this feeling of excessive comparison can be created not just in self-help environments, but really out in the culture as a whole. One of the suggestions I made that might help people manage that feeling is moving from means to ends, moving from the things that help us achieve happiness to the goal of achieving happiness on its own. Because once we're clear about the end, there are a lot of different kinds of means by which we might be able to achieve it. We then talked for a while about how that framework of comparison can infiltrate its way into different kinds of personal growthy or self-helpy environments. From there, we wandered toward the topic of whose fault it is, and the kind of pernicious idea that invades a lot of self-help that if something is wrong with you, it's your fault, and equally, if you are accomplished in some way, it's because you called that in. While this is often true, it's not always true, and even when it is true, there are generally many elements of it that aren't true. There are 10,000 causes and conditions that lead to all of our success or failure in life, and the belief that we can accomplish something and the willingness to give hard effort in the pursuit of that accomplishment is what I would call a necessary but not sufficient condition to achieve and to be happy and healthy. We have to have those things, they're prerequisites, but they alone are often not enough. And sometimes coming into a greater contact with that internally can really help us come to a greater sense of, you know, something resembling inner peace. We closed by kind of talking about the secret inside of that uh, context, and Rick and I gave a couple of different viewpoints on it. Hopefully nobody found that too tremendously offensive. To me, it gets back to these two very basic ideas. Don't chalk up to the metaphysical things that can be explained perfectly easily by the physical. To me, the second pretty obvious point is that we want to focus on what we know works while we can do what might works alongside it. So that's it for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take the time to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.